This Janet Meffer Today podcast is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-601-BABY. That's 855-601-2229 or visit preborn.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. The Declaration of Independence famously states, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it's principles like those that our founders espoused that led our republic, as we know, into becoming the freest, greatest, and most prosperous nation on earth. Yet, as my next guest points out, a number of thinkers today dispute America's lineage and say that American principles are responsible for the moral and social disintegration of our nation. The reason, they say, it's because our principles were based on the enlightenment falsehood of radical individual autonomy. But is that really true? We're going to find out today with my guest, Robert R. Riley. He was Senior Advisor for Information Strategy for the U.S. Secretary of Defense, directed The Voice of America, and served in the White House as a Special Assistant to President Reagan. He's now Director of the Westminster Institute and author of several great books, including his latest called America on Trial, A Defense of the Founding. Mr. Riley, just wonderful to welcome you back. How are you? Oh, it's a delight to be with you again. Thank you for having me. Well, I love this book. I just couldn't put it down because I'm glad you're refuting some of these thinkers who are making these claims. Can you fill people in a little bit about this current debate? Well, it's very interesting that uh, this view could gain so much traction as it has today. I'll just tell you a little anecdote about my oldest son, who is now serving as an officer in the Marine Corps. Uh, In his last year, at a, in fact, it was, he was at a Catholic university. The political science class professor was teaching a point of view on the American founding that it was morally contaminated wow. uh, and therefore led to the kind of moral disarray and degeneration that we experience today in terms of abortion, pornography, uh, same-sex so-called marriage, transgenderism, the list goes on. And it wasn't as if he offered this as one of a variety of views. This was the view he pushed. Hmm. So at the conclusion of his class, he had convinced the majority of the students, and one student asked a very acute question. He said, okay, you've convinced us. What are we supposed to do now? (laughs) My my son, of course, resisted this uh, not only because he disliked it, but because he knew himself that this was an incorrect teaching. But what, as you know, what I try to do in my book is take it on in several ways, uh, directly refuting it, saying, let's see the evidence you found in the American founding, in its documents, in the statements of the founders themselves, that this radical individual autonomy was there. Uh, And I I parsed their statements, that is, of the critics, and I used two principally as examples of the general arguments made in this way, and showed that they, uh, it it simply isn't there. In fact, quite the opposite is. Right. And so I understand why people are driven to this point of view, because they need some explanation 
for how it is we have found ourselves in this morally degraded condition. Uh, but my point, as you know, is that this isn't because of the founding. It's in spite of it. Right. It is a rejection of the principles of the founding. And our best uh, our best strategy today is not to reject the founding, but to return to its principles. Exactly. But where are they getting this argument from when they're making this argument, for example, that, you know, the moral contamination goes back to our founding? How in the world do they even formulate that argument? I always thought it was pretty much understood that the founders had, you know, their roots in natural law and nature's God and an understanding of the Bible to an extent, even though we're not an explicitly Christian nation. How, how are they making this argument? What are they bringing up to try to underscore their point, which is obviously faulty? Well, they make the uh, the, the case by saying uh, that, of course, there was a radical enlightenment that did posit this radical autonomy of the individual, that did deny the existence of natural law, that did make man's will primary, <clears throat> and... We could see the fruition of that, of course, in the French Revolution, which is why I dedicate a chapter of the book in comparing the French and American revolutions to illustrate so clearly uh, that the one was the obverse of the other. Yes. That they weren't the same revolution. They were antithetical to each other. They were. And, and some of the critics who say that we, were, that we had a, a poison pill from the beginning... Uh, try to make the case that really we are the same as the French Revolution. Uh, you know that the that the it, it just manifested itself a little later. So it's a kind of post hoc ergo propter hoc uh, argument because this was a period of radical enlightenment. The American founding must be a product of it. And the other way they do it is say um, John Locke, who undoubtedly had a big influence on the American founding was, in fact, simply uh, Hobbes with a smiley face. Hobbes, the writer, the author of The Leviathan. Hobbes, who uh, justified the absolute sovereignty of the state, the absolute power of the state. And, and that uh, Locke was just sort of a kinder version of Hobbes. Hmm. Uh, so I have to, I spend a couple chapters in the book debunking that point of view, uh, that, in, in fact, look at the type of <clears throat> political regime that would be constructed on the basis of Hobbes's principles, which is an absolute state, versus those that would be built upon um, Locke's principles, which would be a constitutional representative democracy. Right, right. So you've got all of these anomalies on which this view is based, it's sort of like the founders didn't really know what they were doing. They were in the control of ideas over which they had no control <laughs> or even, you know, not they weren't of which they weren't fully cognizant. So they built worse than they knew. Um, now, you say, I mean, were they stupid? Were they or were they rascals? <laughs> I mean, you have, you have to come up with some rather strange suppositions about them. Yeah. Now, what they did is you quoted at the top of the show, uh, Janet, that they we hold these truths uh, to be self-evident, not we hold these values or we hold these opinions. No, these truths. Right, right. 
that are transcendent, that have their source in God and the laws of nature, which are immutable, and therefore are true at all times, everywhere, for all people. And the American Revolution was based explicitly on these transcendent truths. Yes. Now, what's happened um, in recent times is we see, even in Supreme Court decisions, opinions that are of the obverse of this, that um, deny it. Uh, Particularly Justice Anthony Kennedy, in his arguments on uh, abortion and sodomy and same-sex marriage, he uses the term repeatedly, the autonomy of the individual, as if that term was used anywhere in the American founding. Of (laughs) course it wasn't. No. Um, So he sees uh, this radical autonomy in the founding, <clears throat> or at least he manufactures it <laughs> and uses it to overthrow uh, the state laws of the United States. And these certain Christian conservative critics say, yep, Kennedy's right in seeing it there. Um, the difference is we don't like what it is, what it has produced, and he does. Yes, exactly. You And you mentioned that. You talk about people like Rod Dreher with the Benedict Option, people like Russell Moore. And that's, that's a, a really important point, because even if you're saying I'm against it, to see it in the way that the critics see it is to misunderstand the true lineage, as you point out in your book, of America's founding and what really the ideas were that really did fuel the founding of America. And I think that's a really, really key point. We're going to go to a break, but we're going to talk more with Robert Riley about his book. It is called America on Trial, A Defense of the Founding. You're listening to Janet Effort today. We're going to come right back. Stay with us. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. These words written early in John's Gospel remind us in this Advent season that God sent His Son to be our Lord and Savior. But many Christians in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East have never read those words or the Christmas story in Luke 2. Why? Because they have no access to the Bible. So in this season of giving, please join Bible League in sending God's Word to Bibleist believers around the world for only $5 or $50 for 10 Bibles, $500 for 100. Call 800-YESWORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture. There are those who have been looking for the scripture for a number of years. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. That's 800-YESWORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Every day, babies in their mother's wombs are fighting for life, with abortion being the leading cause of death. I already had my mind made up. I was like, I'm going to go through with it. The Ministry of Preborn has pregnancy centers nationwide standing by to help young moms in crisis choose life. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasound sessions in the country. By letting a mother see her baby in the womb and hear the baby's heartbeat, she's 80% more likely to choose life for her baby. When I'm sitting there, the lady is giving me my ultrasound. She's like making these weird faces. She's like, it's two. I just start crying. I can't. And sometimes the blessing is doubled. 
Would you join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today to help save 400 babies by the end of the year? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies from abortion. And now through a match, your gift will be doubled. To donate, dial 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Great to have you with us and great to have with us Robert R. Riley. He is out with a wonderful new book. It's called America on Trial, a Defense of the Founding. We're talking about this mistaken idea that some of these critics have about the lineage of America. And you in this book do a really great job of telling the truth, I think, about the founding and and the ideas that led up to the founding. And you talk a little bit about Athens, Jerusalem, and Rome. Can you talk a little bit about the essentials of those three cities that influenced our founding? Yes, I think, as you know, the the main body of the book is tracing the true lineage of the Ameri- the found of the ideas that made the American founding possible. Right. Without which it would would not have been conceivable, and they aren't ideas from the radical Enlightenment. And uh, I simply point out the heritage of classical Greece uh, and the gift of philosophy the primacy of reason in the sense that the Greek philosophers discovered that our minds can apprehend reality, mm-hmm. uh, that we can know it, not to simply have an opinion about it, and that in this examination we discover an order in nature. And one naturally asks, well, what is the source of this, this order? It's, it's a rational order. Our reason can know it. And I think it was Heraclitus was the first Greek philosopher who said there's got to be a divine intelligence behind this, of which it is an expression. And he used the word, the Greek word logos, to to say what this intelligence was. That's the Greek word for reason. And uh, and we know that from... Uh, Jerusalem, what the great contribution was of monotheism, uh, that there's one God, not many. Uh, This took place in a sea of polytheism. There was no other culture in the Middle East that that proffered this idea that there's only one God. And unlike the polytheists, the Jews uh, said this one God has revealed himself as transcendent. Right and that he has made the world from nothing, and he has made it well, that it's good. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not a, a, a demiurge of evil and one of good contending, fighting over uh, creation, and that which may lapse at any moment into primeval chaos. Don't know that you, God said, Yahweh said, what he's made is good. And we know from Genesis that most particularly the man he made is good because he made man in his own image and likeness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we, I think we could find in Genesis the foundation of Western civilization. Absolutely. Yeah, no one else would... The idea that we're made in God's image and likeness is, is so startling, so revolutionary. Then, of course, Rome, what I... You know, Christianity uh, sort of married... Greek philosophy and Jewish monotheism uh, and the startling revelation of Christ, who is sort of logos comes walking through the door. 
Right. The logos about whom the Greeks had speculated is incarnate. Sure. And enters history and reveals himself as love and, and making a sacrifice for the salvation of man. And therefore, the mystery of man is revealed in the infinite love of God, making man even more precious as each individual person. This was the foundation of a new civilization. Mm. And we, as you know, in the book, I spent a chapter on the Middle Ages showing how uh, these influences uh, created Christendom in which constitutional government first developed. And it developed first in the church through canon law and then sort of leached into the secular sphere in the early parliaments. This this is going to surprise many people who think the Middle Ages is part of the Dark Ages. When they see the articulation of the equality of all people uh, embraced and generally accepted, that the people are sovereign. There's no such thing as the the divine right of kings in the Middle Ages, an idea completely foreign to it. And because of equality and popular sovereignty, there's the requirement of consent. Mentioned by Thomas Aquinas and all the thinkers of the Middle Ages, since man is equal and since he's a rational creature, he must consent in his rule, even if he's ruled by a king. Hmm. Uh, there, There has to be consent that the person be the king, and in a covenantal relationship that makes the king subject to the agreement uh, through which he has become king. And if he breaks that agreement, goodbye, king. As Thomas Aquinas said, there's a right to revolution against tyrants. But also this um, equality, sovereignty, uh, included representation, so that in the bodies that would decide these things affecting all representatives from the constituent parts could come empowered uh, to vote and make decisions. Boy. And even in church councils, it was the origin of the two-thirds rule that is adopted in so many legislatures. And this was just, uh, this was generally accepted in the Middle Ages, imperfect in practice, but there in principle. And one would think, well, this is just going to keep developing. And why didn't we have a continuous development from there to uh, the American founding itself? And I I speak of what derailed those developments. And it was in the late Middle Ages. um, It's a little involved to get into in a short program, but William of Ockham and his denial of this primacy of reason And then Luther in the Reformation, who severs the connection between faith and reason, undermines the foundations of Christendom, and leads to, unintentionally on his part, I would say, but nonetheless leads to the deification of the state Hmm. and the absolute state. There's no longer the distinction between the secular and the sacred, the two swords, the, the distinct spheres. Uh, that that there there was a dual man was subject of two sovereigns. Mm-hmm. 
the secular sovereign and the sacred sovereign, who was, the, of course, the bishops and the popes. Now you only had one sovereign because the prince was also the head of the church. And this led to absolutism. It, it developed into the divine right of kings. And in its secular uh, manifestation through Thomas Hobbes, the Leviathan, which was simply a secular absolute state that had control of everything. Uh, and just to sum this up, the American founding was a reaction against that. Yes, yes. And a reconnection, a revivification with those medieval constitutional principles that I just articulated for you. I should mention just briefly that every one of those principles that I mentioned, equality, uh, sovereignty of the people, requirement of consent, uh, the right to representation and the right to revolution were all explicitly denied by Luther. Mm, mm. Interesting. Uh, it, there's just so much here, which is why people have to read your book. So the, the bottom line then, as you talk about, is the question that needs to be answered is whether law is the product of reason, which is meaning that, you know, what is right flows from something objective versus the primacy of will. Is it law the product of will, which is that it flows from power? I mean, in some regard, that's really what we're up against right now in the moral and social disintegration of America. That That's kind of where the divide seems to be. Let me give you an example of it. Barack Obama, in his book, The Audacity of Hope, said this, quote, implicit in the Constitution's structure and the very idea of ordered liberty was a rejection of absolute truth. <laughs> the infallibility of any idea or ideology or theology or ism and any tyrannical consistency that might lock future generations into a single unalterable course, oh. unquote. So in other words, the truth does not set you free. Uh, it, it, the truth enslaves you. Therefore, freedom today requires the rejection of objective truth, which is what Obama was saying there. Right. It's a rejection of the American founding. It is. Yeah. Good grief. Well, I mean, spoken like a Marxist, right? I mean, that's kind of the direction you're well, it's, going. It's, it's spoken as a progressivist, as yeah. a man who thinks he's riding the wave of history, that uh, there are no immutable laws of nature, that everything is a product of its own time, and we can change things, and we can perfect man ourselves. We don't need, you know, any man who can appear at Planned Parenthood Convention, uh that organization being the principal provider of abortions in the United States today, and say to the assembled members, God bless you, Ugh. has inverted uh, so many uh, moral truths that it's astonishing. Yes. Uh, wow. And what we have to oppose that is the founding itself. Exactly. That, that is the thing to which we can appeal. I mean, we, we, of course, have our Christian faith in the truths 
articulated there, but we know that that's not the way to win an argument in the public sphere. People will say, well, I don't, I'm not a Christian or I'm not a Catholic, you know, so, yeah. so go away. Yeah. But it's harder to tell the founding to go away because this country would have to go away. Exactly. Boy, you know, that's such a perfect point. And I, I think you've done such a brilliant job outlining your argument in detail. It really, like I said at the outset, I couldn't put this book down. Again, the name of it is America on Trial, A Defense of the Founding. Terrific book by Robert R. Riley, who's been kind enough to join us again. And what an honor. Thank you so much, Mr. Riley, for being here. It's so great to be with you. God bless you. Thank you. You too. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This Janet Meffer Today podcast is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-601-BABY. That's 855-601-2229 or visit preborn.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I love that verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. This is what God tells us. It's great news. But the problem is many of us find it difficult to articulate or even to fully understand what it really means to be in Christ. And that can impact our understanding of who we are as Christians. That's why Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 are so encouraging. And my next guest is going to help us understand what it means to be in Christ. Joining me now, Chip Ingram, teaching pastor and CEO of Living on the Edge. We're going to talk about his book, Discover Your True Self, How to Silence the Lies of Your Past and Actually Experience Who God Says You Are. That says it all, Chip. It's great to have you here. How are you? Oh, thanks, Janet. It's great to be with you. Thank you. How much confusion do you think Christians have about what it means to be in Christ? I don't mean this as critically as it might sound, but I think in general we're pretty clueless. I think it's unconscious, but I think there's this, here's all the things I need to do, and I need to pray so long, read the Bible so long, do activities one, two, and three. And I think we live for God's approval functionally rather than from God's approval and His love. And this, this was a complete life changer for uh, me and my wife, and as a result, a lot of other people. I I fit that first category for many, many, many years. Wow. What do you think was the source of your own confusion about it, and how have you worked your way through it as you've, especially as you preach through Ephesians? Yeah, I, you know, I think coming to grips with, you know, it's amazing how um, theology really is important. And, you know, we all have these mirrors, and we have mirrors of family of origin that say you're loved and accepted or you belong if you do these certain things or if you perform a certain way. And, you know, our parents are human. We're human. And I think we have, um, you know, a culture that screams, you know, advertisement is built around, I'm going to tell you something that you are not okay until you have whiter teeth or drive this kind of car or your hair is that color or you get to go to that concert or your kids get into that school or, you know, or you're very athletic. And so I think we, we live in a world of these mirrors that tell us, to be acceptable, to be valued, to be loved. Here's all the conditions. And then the crazy thing is they change. Yes. And, and so I think that's what makes it so challenging. And then God gives us the mirror of his word. And in Ephesians, it says every spiritual blessing. He says, 
before you did anything, I wanted you. I loved you. And I adopted you into my family with all the rights and all the privileges. I lavished my love on you. I paid a big price for you. I redeemed you so you're really valuable. I, I sealed you with my spirit. You're safe. And I think it's taking those kind of big theological words that are true and then translating them to those huge emotional needs of how do you overcome you know, rejection and fear and shame and guilt, which are, are really just the symptoms of um, I don't measure up, I'm not doing well, I'm unacceptable. So um, th- that has been studying that, and then for me it was trying hard to believe that doesn't work. You have to renew your mind. And in the book, uh, you know, as you know, I talk about uh, these cards where we would write out, my wife and I did, the lies that we believed. You know, you're only acceptable if people like you. You're only acceptable if you perform well, work harder than other people, are successful, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. And um, so it was at a point of crisis with us where we were very committed to the Lord. We were in seminary at the time and we're having major, major marriage problems because we both came from alcoholic families. And we just had a very godly pastor counselor who helped us realize how we saw ourselves was the world's view as opposed to what God says about us. And we, 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 those little cards for two years, if you can imagine, we sat on the couch before I went to work and we read them out loud and then put them on our bedstand. And uh, we begin over time to really believe that we're loved. That's neat. That we're secure. Yeah. Um, yeah. The shame of our past doesn't have to define us. Well, and that's encouraging for people because you've walked through all of that. So anybody who is struggling with it now can understand you're a pastor who's speaking from experience. It isn't just theology coming forward from Ephesians 1 through 3, kind of on an intellectual level, but you've walked this road. And, you know, it's interesting when you're talking about that, Chip, it strikes me that when people come with this premise that I'm only good enough, dot, 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 if I do this, or if I look like this, or what have you. Jesus is the one who said, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I was thinking of that verse, Luke five thirty two, when you were saying that God is not like man. And how much is that driven home when we're reading that wonderful section of Ephesians, that God does not look upon you the way that man looks upon you. And that's a game changer, I would think, for a lot of people. I think it is. And I think it's, it's one of those where I do believe many, 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 many people and those listening to you and me right now intellectually believe that. But if you looked at their behavior, when I looked at my behavior, I I believed all that, quote, intellectually, but I think it wasn't until I paired it with the kind of behaviors that were tripping us up. And so what I did in the book was I, I kind of like played spiritual Jeopardy. You know, that's sort of one of my favorite things I like to watch. Yeah. You know, and Anything. Jeopardy is, you know, they give you the answer. What's the question? Yeah. And so the answer is that you're wanted. What's the question? How do you overcome rejection? The answer is you are valuable, infinitely valuable. Well, what, what's, what's the question? How do I overcome feeling insignificant and worthless? You know, the answer is, is that you're secure. You're safe. You're in Christ. Uh, the question is, uh, how do I overcome the fears that dominate my life? And so uh, I did a short chapter on rejection and insignificance and fear and shame and guilt and purposelessness to set up, this is where we're living. And then I flipped it and said, okay, now, 
this is what God says is the answer to that. And then at the end of every chapter, I took those same cards that we reviewed, and I put them in, in a way where people could actually practically start the process, not just, I don't want them to read the book and go, I'm going to try really hard to believe what's true. Yeah. I wanted to give them a tool where, you know something, I, I'm going to, as a man thinks in his heart, so you become. The mindset on the flesh is death. The mindset on the spirit is life and peace. I wanted people to start a journey um, to renew their mind and begin to believe this. I watched my wife go from someone who was beautiful, smart, and godly, but looked in the mirror and thought she was completely unlovable and a disaster, to someone who was like a flower blooming over the years. Um, she had the worst self-concept of anyone I'd ever met. And... Um, it is, it is amazing what can happen. Then I saw her sit with my daughter during those formative years and go through these cards and these truths. So, uh, you know, our heart is really just to help people believe what's already true of us. Uh, it's so liberating. Well, it is. And that's really where the rubber meets the road is when you can internalize the truth that you already know in your head. And you had mentioned, Chip, this uh, section that you have in the book on the lie of rejection and the truth that you are wanted. And you already referenced this at the the beginning parts of Ephesians chapter one, where, uh, you know, Paul talks about he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. How do you go from reading this to believing it to internalizing it? Uh, well, I would say, you know, is, is um, the book is my best shot at how to do that. But in, in, in brief, um, getting honest enough with yourself where you recognize I'm believing some lies. Yeah. Because we all have great levels of denial. And, and kind of looking at, wow, so I wonder what's behind me pleasing people. I, I, I wonder why I feel so nervous and anxious around people that are powerful. Or I wonder why I feel so compulsive that I have to, my house has to be perfect or everything has to be perfect. Or, I mean, we all have enough issues, right, that I mean, at least with some close friends or our, our mate or at least our kids have told us that we know. And so I think the first thing is pausing and saying, okay, there's lies behind that. There's, there's lies behind my addictions, my struggles, my fears, my anxiety. And then you identify what those are. And, and then I think the next thing is to say, okay, I, Lord, you have now permission to work in my life. The energy that we spend trying to cover up things, uh, trying to mask where we struggle, is inordinate. And, God, okay, God, I give you permission. Now, I, I want to um, – I recognize the lie – And then then what I want to do is I want to focus and renew my mind on the truth. I love it. Hang on just a moment. Chip Ingram with us. His book is Discover Your True Self. We'll be coming back on Janet Meffer today right after this. Every day, babies in their mother's wombs are fighting for life, with abortion being the leading cause of death. I already had my mind made up. I was like, I'm going to go through with it. The Ministry of Preborn has pregnancy centers nationwide standing by to help young moms in crisis choose life. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasound sessions in the country. By letting a mother see her baby in the womb and hear the baby's heartbeat, she's 80% more likely to choose life for her baby. When I'm sitting there, the lady is giving me my ultrasound. She's like making these weird faces. He's like, it's two. I just start crying. I can't. And sometimes the blessing is doubled. 
Would you join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today to help save 400 babies by the end of the year? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies from abortion. And now through a match, your gift will be doubled. To donate, dial 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. These words written early in John's Gospel remind us in this Advent season that God sent His Son to be our Lord and Savior. But many Christians in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East have never read those words or the Christmas story in Luke 2. Why? Because they have no access to the Bible. So in this season of giving, please join Bible League in sending God's Word to bible believers around the world for only five $5 or $50 for 10 Bibles, $500 for 100. Call 800-YESWORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture. There are those who have been looking for the scripture for a number of years. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. That's 800-YESWORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Great to have you with us and great to have with us Chip Ingram, teaching pastor and CEO of Living on the Edge. His book is called Discover Your True Self, How to Silence the Lies of Your Past and Actually Experience Who God Says You Are. Who are we in Christ Jesus? Ephesians 1 through 3 is the passage that Chip uses to base this book on. And and what a great section of scripture we're talking about. Chip, we were talking about one of the things that you mentioned in the book, the lie of rejection that people tend to believe, but we know from God's word that we are wanted. And you've said you really have to recognize if you're in that position that there are lies behind believing that you have to figure out what they are and then make the move to say, Lord, work in my life. What kind of difference does it make? Have you seen like in your own marriage, as you were discussing, when you really do grasp the truth that God loves you and God wants you and that God has expressed this to you? What difference does that end up making when you really do grasp that truth? What I discovered when I began to realize that I'm already loved is my workaholism, my people pleasing, <laughs> those things that, I mean, I would hear the phone ring as a young pastor and I would jump up like, you know, I've got to solve this right now. And uh, my wife was a withdrawer and it was like, you know, why should I even try that? Or no one would ever want me or I don't have anything significant to say. And as she began to renew her mind, then she began to realize, well, wait a second. God has uniquely made me. He's going to use the hurt and even the pains in my past. I'm a trophy of his grace. And so what I, what I saw was a woman who bloomed, who actually ended up teaching other women the things that she was learning. And uh, we put some of these things on cards that uh, we just can't keep them in stock because what we find is people are just so desperate when it comes to this area, but they don't have a practical way. And renewing your mind, you know, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. It's not doesn't say by trying super hard and, you know, telling yourself you'll never do that again. It's by the renewing of your mind. And uh, as we renewed our minds, then you experience the good, acceptable, perfect will of God. So it's been a journey. I don't want people to hear, you know, there's a magic pill or I'm going to review a few cards and read a few chapters and overnight everything changes. But uh, I've just, I've counseled so many people over the years. And as you, in other words, you go into training. 
Yeah. You know, it's like just you've met, never run a marathon. You know, you walk and then you jog and then wow, you, you, you run a mile and, and, and then little by little. And I will tell you, um, it's just been the most liberating, exciting thing to see in our life and in the people around us. Very cool. That's really neat. And, and that's great to hear because it really gives people hope. Some other lies that you talk about, Chip, the lie of insignificance, the lie of fear. Stopping on this one, the lie of fear. There, There's a lot of fear, especially right now. And there's a lot of fear of people and circumstances and the future and all of this. I think many people feel very insecure what do you have to say to those people about the need to understand that you are secure as a Christian? Well, you know, God says that I've not given you a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love. And it's interesting, sound mind or some translations will say self-discipline because it's a pretty hard word to translate, but it's a, it's a mind where your emotions are not dictating how you respond to things. Right. And in Ephesians 1, he says that he has sealed us with his spirit as a down payment for our future hope. In other words, God says, all that I've promised to you, here's the guarantee. My spirit sealed you for me. You're safe with me. Nothing and no one can pull you out of my hands. Not height, nor depth, nor length, nor principalities, nor powers. Nothing can separate you from my love. And I think when we begin to believe that, not just acknowledge that, well, that's probably true for someone somewhere. And that's true not because you do something or if you do something. That's true because you're united with Christ. Um, Janet, maybe this is real helpful. Often when I teach um, on uh, being united with Christ, people can't get it. So what, what I do, I put a big, like, fish tank of water, and then I take a big, heavy bolt that people can see, and I... I, I say, I drop it in the water, and it sinks to the bottom. And, and I ask them, you know, hey, why did it sink? And everyone knows, oh, gravity, and it's really heavy. And then I take a little wooden block, and I, and I put it on the water, and it floats. And I say, well, why, why does that float? And everyone goes, oh, well, obviously, it's, it's of a different nature. It's a different substance. Hmm. Then I take a big, thick rubber band, and I take a, another bolt, and I wrap it around the bolt and the piece of wood, and then I put it in this big fish thing, and they you know, put the camera up real close, and it floats. And then I say to people, so why is it floating? And they go, well, because it's attached to the wood. Hmm. In other words, what people, if they could grasp, when he says we've died with Christ, we've been raised with Christ, what it means is the properties and the nature of Jesus are now yours. God sees you at the lens through his righteousness, and what's true of him is now true of you. And when we can grasp that's who you are, you don't have to earn it. You don't have to prove it. You, don't, uh, you are safe. Uh, that changes everything. And this book is about helping people grasp that. And what God says is, when you're a part of my family, uh, you can choose to fear, but you don't have to. I mean, you can choose to respond to people's rejection because, you know, you didn't grow up on the right side of the neighborhood or you're a different color than someone else or because you think differently than them. You, you can choose to be afraid. But how can you be afraid when you're secure in my arms? I made you. I love you just the way you are. And we all talk to ourselves thousands of times a day. It's changing what we say to ourselves and informing that with what the Spirit says about us. And I just, it changes. 
Yeah. Uh, that's how real spiritual growth occurs. That's true. I love that illustration. I think that's perfect. And and there's something to seeing it like that that really helps you wrap your mind around it. I think that's a tremendous way of illustrating that point. You know, something else that you discuss in the book, Chip, is the lie of shame, but also the lie of guilt. Now, a lot of Christians might immediately say, but we are guilty. That's why we need Christ. Yet there is something that we sometimes experience in the way of false guilt. This is the passage that you're talking about in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 with that famous, you know, Awana verse that I memorized when I was about seven years old. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. Talk about this lie of guilt, though. There is a sense in which we absolutely are guilty, and then we are in Christ. We are no longer guilty. How do you work through that passage and explain that concept to people? Well, after chapter one, he's told us, this is who you are in Christ. And in the middle of chapter one, he prays that they could actually grasp and understand all that's true of them. And, and then he makes this big contrast. And then he says, but don't forget where you came from. You know, right. this is who you were apart from Christ. You were dead in your sins, hostile to God, etc. And then there's this huge contrast. But God, who is rich in mercy and grace and love, he forgave, he rescued. And, and then he talks about, well, how do you receive that? And it's the verse that you just quoted that leads to your future. For you are his workmanship. Literally, the word is, you're his poem, you're his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus unto literally a good work that he's prepared for you from the foundations of the earth. And so I think we understand that we were justly guilty before God, and when we trust Christ, God has removed and covered our guilt by the work of Christ. His Spirit comes into our life. We're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We become His children. And so our legal guilt before God is removed, and not that's half of it. The second half is then the very righteousness of Christ is, is imputed to us. And yes. again, I think people have you know, these are big theological words, but in a practical way, if, and, and, and please, you know, if, if people could visualize, you know, maybe a big con- computer screen on the sky in heaven, and their name comes up on the computer screen, and on the left side is their name and under it every sin they've ever done, and on the right side, you know, there's a column, and it's Jesus and all of his righteousness. When you trusted Christ, God went over with the cursor and he pushed delete. All your sins are removed. And then he said, click and drag, and he pulled the very righteousness of Jesus <laughs> over to your side and then lifted the, the little uh, cursor and then his righteousness. And now he says, this is who you really are. So when you mess up, because we still choose to do wrong things, you do have real guilt and you need restored fellowship. So you say, Lord, oh, boy, when I said that, I was, you know boy, that was all about me, or when I lied just to cover up what I did. And the Holy Spirit makes that clear, and so yes, we confess that. But what I'm talking about in the book is some people feel guilty because they didn't do what everyone wanted them to do. Some people feel guilty because it's not getting to know God, but how many chapters do I need to read? And if I only read two chapters instead of four chapters, I must be a bad person. There's all kind of guilt that is rooted not in who you actually are. That is so beautiful and it's so well said and you can read more about it in Chip Ingram's book, Discover Your True Self. So good to have you on the program, Chip. Keep up the good work and God bless you. Thanks so very much. You're welcome. God bless you. And thank you for joining us on Janet Meffer today. We will see you next time.